So we're in Lesson 8, looking at Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 of Revelation. So let's look at this together as we look at this letter to the church at Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so let's look at what we're going to look at here. First of all, Christ addressed the pastor of the church in Sardis. Now, let's, let's find out a few things about Sardis. It's an important commercial city that was located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It was on an important trade route that uh, ran east and west through the kingdom of Lydia. Uh, its important industries included jewelry, dye, textiles, which had uh, made the city quite wealthy. From a religious standpoint... Uh, it was uh, the center of pagan worship and the site of the, te site of the temple of Artemis, which is also another name for it, as you might know it, as Aphrodite or Venus, okay, as a Roman god. It's a, so it's, it has a fertility cult there. Now, here's how Christ describes himself. And so we're, I want you to see a couple things here. Number one, notice he's going to use an allusion here as he describes himself, and I'm going to help you to understand Number one, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So first of all, the seven spirits of God, what is that? It's the Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that Christ gives direction to the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop for a moment. I need to stop here because there's a lot of unusual teaching out there today where you can misunderstand the role and who the Holy Spirit is. First of all, let me just remind you that the Holy Spirit is the th third person of the Trinity. He's God. So he's a person. He's a spirit, but he's a person. Now what happens is, is a lot of times, with a lot of what you see on TV and a lot of different groups, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is like this power source. The Holy Spirit is this experience. And what I want you to understand is, and especially when we see this passage here, is that is not what he is. He's God. And he's not there, because a lot of times it's there. He's there for you to have this experience or to have this thrill in the Spirit. That is not at all what he's there for. He's not there for you, although he is for you. You say, what do you mean by that? What I want you to understand is, he is there to do what Christ tells him to do. He's there at the direction of the Jesus 
for whatever Jesus wants him to do. Now, what does Jesus want him to do? Well, you just need to go back to John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And you'll read there about the parakletos, which is the Holy Spirit, or as your Bible may translate it, another helper or another comforter. King James would use the word comforter. In fact, we used to sing in church, the comforter has come. How many of you remember singing that song? That's talking about the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to carry out what Jesus wants Him to do in our lives and in our world. And what's that? To convict and convince of sin, to convince of righteousness, and to give direction for your life and to seal you for the day of redemption. He is not there for you to have a personal great experience with. And that's what we need to understand. He is a person, and He's under the direction of Jesus Christ. Everybody understand that? So what we see here is Jesus is saying, I have authority over the Holy Spirit. He does what I say. In fact, you'll see that over and over in the Scripture. Jesus does what the Father says. The Holy Spirit does what Jesus says. There's, there is a hierarchy there within the Trinity. There is mutual submission. The other thing I want you to see is he says he has the seven stars. And again, we've already seen this from chapter 1, that the seven stars are the messengers of those churches or the pastors. So what I want you to see is that Christ has authority over the pastors of the churches. So Jesus has authority over those who are pastoring, those who are pastors of those churches. So he wants to make that point. So again, he's talking about the point he's wanting to make to Sardis here, and it's an important point, is that I'm in control. You may want to write that down somewhere. Jesus is saying, I'm in control. I'm the one who gives direction to the Holy Spirit. I'm the one who has authority over the, over the pastors. I'm it. I'm the top tier. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes pastors, I'll, I'll just be honest with you, I, I can say this because I am a pastor, sometimes pastors want to think like, they're it. No, they're not it. The one who's it is Jesus. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who's in authority. It's Jesus. It's Jesus' church. It's not that pastor's church. Did you understand what I'm saying? So that's the point he's wanting to make here to this church. Is the, he is his authority. He's the one who's in control. So remember now, I told you that the letter is broken up into different sections, and the next section would be one of commendation. Now I want you to notice with me, when you look at these verses... Verse, in verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He doesn't start out in a positive sense. So here's what I want you to see. It's noteworthy that Christ did not commend them for anything. His normal pattern in writing these letters is that usually there is something good about the church, and he's going to make mention of it. This church doesn't have anything good. Isn't that scary? I mean, when Jesus looks at this church in Sardis, he can't find anything good to talk about, to commend them for. That's pretty sad, isn't it? You know, so when he's looking at this church, he's got nothing good to say about it. That's, you know... How would you like to be the pastor of that church and stand before Jesus? Now, let's go on now. He's going to rebuke them now. And so again, we see this in uh, the first part, the last part of verse 1. 
Again, he makes that same statement, I know your works, that is, Christ has an intimate knowledge of the church. We've already discussed that many times, that God knows everything. So he has an intimate knowledge of the church. But here's what he's going to say to them. Here's what he's going to rebuke them about. The church had a reputation for being alive. The church had a reputation for being alive. That is, to the rest of the Christian community, this church in Sardis had a reputation for being a happening place. They had a reputation for for being a good church, that this was a church where where things were going really well. and they, They had a great reputation in the community, the Christian community, not the pagan community. It didn't matter to the pagan community. But they had a reputation for being alive, that things were going well there. Now, here's the problem he's saying. They only got a reputation because the reality is Christ exposed the church as being dead. They were actually dead. Look at what he says there. You have a name that is a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. And and the reality of that is that they were spiritually dead. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Let me just throw a question out to you. Is it possible for a church to have the outward appearance that everything's okay, that everything's happening, that that's a great place to go to, you want to go to that church, but in reality... They're not okay, they're dead. Is that possible today? How many of you know churches like that? You know, it's possible for us to become that way. To where it looks like we're doing okay, but in reality we're we're dead. I think we've been there before. I'm just going to be honest with you. See, what happens is is if a church, you 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 can have a great worship service, you can have all kinds of activities and stuff, But if your focus is wrong, if your focus is inward, if your focus is basically on you and having a holy huddle, let's just get together and let's just enjoy each other's company and keep everybody happy, you can die on a vine in a minute. Because if your focus isn't, you have to understand, in the church, life comes from what? Reaching out. When you have a church that reaches out, that's doing something to reach others, then you have life. But when you're not doing that, you're going to die. So here's a church, they're dead. I mean, they got the appearance, like everything's happening, like they're the happening place. But the reality is, is they're dead. They're dead. And so he's pointing that out to them. He's saying to them, how would you like to be that church for a moment? How would you like to get a letter from Jesus saying, you know what, I don't have anything good to say about you. In fact, you guys got a good reputation, but the reality is is you're nothing but dead. That would be pretty scary for that church, wouldn't it? You'd be like, well, you know, aren't we doing this? It would cause you to reexamine the stuff you're doing and why you're doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It would cause you to reexamine what you're doing, why you're doing it, because the reality is is there may be a problem there. You know, let's stop for a moment. We're talking about church here, but it's very, very much you could talk about our individual lives. You could look good on the outside and reality be dead. You say, is that possible? 
Remember Jesus? He rebuked a whole group of people who were pretty religious. Who were they? The Pharisees. In fact, some of his severest condemnations, his rebukes, were directed to the Pharisees because I'm telling you folks, they had it together. I mean, you talk about tithing, they tithe their table salt. I mean, you think about that. And we only think in terms of what we put in the plate. They were thinking in terms of spices, giving God their portion or whatever. They looked good, but Jesus said they were dead. This is what's going on with this church. So let me just explain to you what's going on with this church. Here's the thing. They had religion rather than Jesus. They had religion rather than Jesus. So you can have a good reputation and because you're religious, but the reality is, listen to me, they didn't have Jesus. They didn't have Jesus. And look, I've been in churches like that. You've been in churches like that. I think we've been like that at one time here. And so he's exposing them as being dead. So he's going to tell them what they need to do about it. So we're going to spend some time here. Here's the exhortation. Here's the exhortation. Look with me at verse 2. He says this, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are already dead, for I have, found your, I have not found your works perfect before God. Here's what he wants them to do. First thing, he wants them to be watchful. He tells them to be alert. Folks, you cannot coast in your Christian life. Do you understand me? You cannot coast. You cannot coast in some past decision. You know, I tell my young folks in my house all the time. Now, you might think I'm harsh for doing this, but I do. I tell, I tell them all the time on different times, don't assume just because you prayed a prayer or don't assume because you're a pastor's child that you're saved. Because that has nothing to do with your salvation. What has to do with your salvation is your personal decision, your personal commitment to Jesus. That's where your faith comes in. That's where your decision comes in. It's not because you prayed a prayer, you asked Jesus into your heart. It's not because you're in a Christian home with a pastor. It's where you are at right now in your walk with God. I want, I want to challenge you folks. In the New Testament, salvation is never spoken of as a pastime event. Salvation is always spoken of as a present-time event with a future anticipation of glory coming. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's where you're at now. So if you're banking on a decision that you made 10 years ago, but nothing's changed in your life since then, you maybe need to examine some things. You need to be watchful is what he's saying here. You need to be alert to the condition of your life. So don't. what we do is we like to coast in Christianity. We like to think in terms of what we did before. Don't. There's no coasting. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward. Where are you now? So you've got to be alert to the condition of your heart, condition of your life. Do you understand? Be watchful. And, and, and listen to me. When it says be watchful, don't be watchful about the guy across the aisle. We like to do that, don't we? Well, they're not living right. I question whether or not they're safe. You know what? Don't even go there. Look at yourself. Where are you at? Where are you at? So be watchful. He tells them to be alert. Here's what he also he tells them. He calls 
them to strengthen the few evidences of their Christian life. He calls them to strengthen the evidences of their Christian life. So there obviously is a few things in their life that they still have going on. So he says, I want you to strengthen those areas. So, okay, let's take, let's take somebody for a moment. Let's say the term we used to use in a church years ago, we, you don't hear it often anymore, is being backslidden. How many remember here about being backslidden? All right. You're, how many of you notice we don't use that term anymore? We don't. Well, here's what I want you to understand. When you have somebody who's backslidden, if they're truly a believer, there's still going to be some evidence in their life that they're trusting in Jesus. It might be simply that they know they're not doing right, but they're praying. Or maybe they'll occasionally read the Word or, or pick up a daily bread or something. But they're still not doing right. What he's saying is that for that person... You need to strengthen the few things that are there in your life. So you spend more time in prayer. You spend more time in the Word. You spend more time maybe connecting with God's people and so forth. You strengthen the few things that you have there so you can regain your life. You just don't pick it up. How many of you tried that? Just pick off where you left off. You can't do that. You'll give up. So he's saying strengthen the few evidences of your Christian life there. Now he goes on then, look at verse 3, he says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Now what's he talking about here? Christ calls them to remember the gospel. See, I think that's probably one, the one thing that we tend to forget about is the gospel. You say, now what's the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. It's Jesus' sacrifice on a cross for you. It's the reality that without Jesus, you were going to hell. And that if it wasn't for Jesus on the cross, dying in your place, being buried, raised again on the third day, seated on the right hand of the Father, if it wasn't for the reality of the gospel, you wouldn't be saved. So what's he saying there? You need to remember when you got saved. You need to remember when you heard the word of the gospel and you responded by, yes, I need that for my life. And you need to strengthen yourself. You need to remind yourself of the gospel. I was, I was listening to a speaker that I like to listen to every once in a while, a gentleman by the name of John Piper. And he just spoke a few months ago in England, and I was listening to his message. The computer is amazing. You can hear some of his messages they speak in England. You can hear them. And what he was talking about was if you struggle with bitterness, if you struggle with anger, if you struggle with resentment towards other people, and sometimes we do do that, don't we? Here's what he said you need to do. You just simply need to remember the gospel. And he was like, what does that have to do with it? Well, see, when you remember the gospel... You remember that if you take your eyes off that person that you're angry with and put them back on yourself, you realize that if it wasn't for Jesus, you'd be going to hell. Period. And yeah, maybe they've done wrong, but you've done wrong, and it was deserving of hell. And so the gospel reminds you of what your destiny was without Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
you are reminded of where you were headed without Jesus. Folks, without Jesus, I was going to hell. That's reality. And that person that I'm angry with, if they don't know Jesus, the reality is that they're going to hell. That's reality. So I've got to remind myself of what? The gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's what I think happens too much with us, folks. We forget the gospel. We forget what he did for us. See, this is like when I tell my kids, don't just assume just because you're in a Christian home you're okay. See, all that stuff, pedigree, education, good deeds versus bad deeds, all that stuff means nothing. Because that can't get you out of hell. It's only Jesus who can. You've got to remember the gospel. Okay, so let's go on then. He, told them, he tells them to hold fast. He calls them to hold fast in obedience. Look with me, verse 3. Hold fast and repent. What, what are they holding fast to? They're holding fast to his word and being obedient to what he says. And then he goes on and he tells them to repent. Now, what does that mean? Again, repentance is not simply just confession. It goes one step beyond confession. It's doing something about it. So Christ calls them to acknowledge and turn from their sin. So he's telling them not just to acknowledge their sin, because everybody can acknowledge their sin, but it's doing something about it. Look, if you get, if you, remember, I used this illustration before. If you keep getting your hand caught in the cookie jar and you keep telling Mama, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I apologize. And, and, and how many of you are good at hearing apologies, but you're just like, you're sorry for apologies, let's see something different now. That's what repentance is. Repentance is moving beyond an apology and it's doing something about it. It's, God, I need your help to do something about this. I need your help to stop this behavior. So then he gives them a warning. I want you to look, read with me. Look at what it says. Therefore, if you will not watch. So, okay, he's saying here, okay, if you're not going to pay attention here, if you're not going to be watchful about your life, about where you're at, look at what he says. I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Here's what he's saying. Christ tells them that his judgment will come unexpectedly. Now, you can look at it two ways. Actually, I would like for you to look at it the second way. The first way is, is you can look at it in terms of that he's saying that I will come expecting. He's talking about his second coming. The second coming, you're going to be unprepared for when Jesus comes. You can look at it that way. But there's another way you can look at it, and I think this is the one that we maybe need to think about. And that is, you don't know how long you're going to be alive. Does everybody understand that? Nobody here has a written contract with God that says you're guaranteed a certain number of years, period. And what he's saying is, is that if you don't get your life in order, if you don't begin to be watchful, if you don't begin to take serious his gospel in your life and begin to deal with the stuff in your life and turn from it, you don't know how long you have. Because number one, he may come back. Or number two, you may die. And let's be honest, folks. We've all been around long enough to know we have seen all ages die, have we not? It is not only the old folks who die. We have seen babies. We have seen teenagers. We have seen young men. 
death, death has no preference. Death will kill all of us. And, and, and here's the reality. So what he's saying, and what happens is, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then what? The judgment. This is what Jesus is talking about here, folks. Get your act together, because you don't know how long you have. Do you understand? We think we've got forever. Boy, I can remember when I was 18. I thought I was invincible. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I could put away... You know, we used to joke when I used to work at Piedmont that we used to go out to lunch and we'd hit the Western Steer and they had the big buffet, you know, and, and we used to joke about George could just pull the chair up there and, 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 and keep it off. Can't keep it off anymore. You can tell that. Okay. Here, here's the other one. And, and back then, I could hop on a plane and fly to Africa. Not even think about it. Now, I get on a plane... Just to fly, even to Philly, and I'm worried about, is this plane going to make it? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Something happens when you get older. You start thinking about your bones. You start thinking about your body, and you start thinking about, boy, that's going to hurt later if I do that. You know what I'm saying? Before, you didn't care. And see, when you're younger, you don't have a concern about how long you're going to live. But there's a sense in which we still don't. The reality is, is we don't know how long we have. We don't know how long we have. So we've got to take heed to his warning. He's going to come unexpectedly. Now, here's the promise he gives. We, the wonderful thing about Jesus, he just doesn't rebuke, but he gives a promise. First of all, Christ promises that those who endure will be clothed in righteousness. Folks, here's the wonderful thing about Jesus, and that's this. You know, it's not a question of how many good things you do and whether or not your good stuff's going to outshine your bad stuff. The fact is you can do nothing that will make you look good. Isaiah says very clearly that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. All the good stuff you do are just like a bunch of rags. And the reality is, is that Jesus is the one. He will give you a new raiment. He will... You will shine forth in righteousness that He gives you, not because of yourself. Here's the other one. He talks about the book of life, that you're not going to have your name removed from the book of life. Now, what does that mean? Jesus promises that those who endure are assured salvation. When He gives the promise here, He's saying, I'm not going to remove your name from the book of life. Folks, That's what does that mean? You're guaranteed what? What are you guaranteed? Salvation in heaven. Man, you don't need to live scared. Does that mean I'm not going to be in there? Is there a bunch of eraser marks in the book of life? There's no eraser marks in the book of life, folks. And here's the other thing. Here's, I think this is a wonderful one. Here's what he says. Christ promises that those who endure will be acknowledged. Isn't this wonderful? He says... Look. Let's look what he says. Look at what he says there, verse 5. But I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. What does that mean here? You know, I look at that and I look at the meaning of that, and it's almost like 
Jesus is going to brag about us to God. How many of you, uh, when you're when you're when you're um, when your young one has done well, parent, and you're with other family or friends or whatever, how many of you have bragged about them? We do that, don't we? We embarrass them. Oh, like Dad, quit it. You know, that's half the fun. Yes. But we also like to talk up our kids. We like to talk up our kids, and we like to say, boy, you won't believe what they did the other day. They were good. Oh, Dad. Oh, Mom. Be quiet. Oh, I'm going to be embarrassed. You know, and, but we like to talk up our kids. Jesus is going to talk us up, folks. Well, you might be hearing you saying, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm not like Billy Graham. I'm not, like, I'm not doing anything for Jesus. My folks, listen. The measure by which God brags on us is different than what we think. Do you understand what I'm saying? How we judge people today in the world is not the measuring stick that God uses. In fact, a lot of the folks that we think are doing something probably aren't going to get anything because they've already received their reward now. Just being honest with you. And one day, he says, to him who overcomes, to him who overdures, the one who perseveres, the one who hangs on in hope, I'm going to brag about him before my father and the angels. Isn't that awesome? That's an awesome thing. You know, to, to have somebody brag on you, that just makes you feel good. And, and let's be honest, remember when you were a kid and your dad or mom did brag on you, it felt good, didn't it? How well would it be when you think about Jesus bragging on us before the Father? So here's the exhortation. Here's what we're going to close with. As always, we are called to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit reveals to us. So out of this, God may be speaking to you about something. And here's what Jesus says. To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen. Listen to what God's telling you. Okay, let's close our time in prayer, and next week we will look at the church at Philadelphia. Let's pray.